Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 122 and the seventh installment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. While the podcast and all the content being shared over July and August is free, please consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is an absolutely stunning portrait miniature of Catherine of Aragon, painted by Roland Hoy, and a Tudor Queen's motto bracelet. A huge thank you to Roland and Shearer for sponsoring this amazing prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the great wardrobe of the Tudor Queens is Professor Maria Hayward. Maria Hayward is a professor of early modern history, working mainly on the 16th and 17th centuries, with a particular focus on the Tudor and Stuart courts. Her main research areas are on early modern material culture, in particular textiles and clothing. Most of Professor Hayward's publications are on the early Tudor court, but her most recent book is Stuart Style, Monarchy, Clothing and the Scottish Male Elite, published by Yale in 2020. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Maria. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Natalie. Now, I suppose a good place to start is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. I'm Maria Hayward. Um, I'm an early modern historian at the University of Southampton, and I've always had a love of Tudor history. In addition to um, being passionate about the, the Tudor world, in my earlier, the earlier part of my career, I, I trained and worked as a textile conservator. So that is where my interest in historic textiles came from. And by working on clothing and furnishings at the Tudor and Stuart Courts, it allowed me to combine those two sides of my, my interests. So in that sense, the, the love of the, the written and visual material from the, the sort of the 16th and 17th century, but also where possible looking at, at textiles that survive from that period or references to them and being able to draw sort of a practical knowledge of the textiles alongside the um, the written material and the visual material is probably is really a really effective way of thinking about um, clothing and dress in this period. Wonderful and we are going to be focusing on the wardrobe of the Tudor queens today in this episode so let's start by maybe you just telling us a little bit about the great wardrobe in the 16th century. So the Great Wardrobe, uh, as its name suggests, was um, a very large and substantial building and it was a key part of the royal household. And there was one that functioned primarily for the, for the monarch and then the other for their, for their spouse. And so, of course, in this period, it's going to be very much that that Great Wardrobe is working for Henry VII, Henry VIII and Edward VI. But of course, when we get to the Tudor Queen's Regnant, then the Great Wardrobe is theirs. Whereas obviously under Henry VIII, um, his wives, as they have separate households, um, have a separate Great Wardrobe in essence. And so it is primarily a storage place where textiles in particular, but also furs and trimmings would be bought and kept and then used as required to make either clothing for if we're thinking about the Queen's wardrobe, so clothing for the Queen specifically, but also textiles for her household, so furnishings, and also the livery that she would supply to the members of her household. And to us, I suppose it sounds quite surprising maybe that you would stockpile, in essence, these sort of luxury textiles. But especially as at this point, England wasn't a sort of a silk producing country. These silk textiles were predominantly being imported from Italy. So this is um, and they would come on a sort of a periodic basis. So the monarch usually had first sight of what was imported. So in order so they would buy it when it when it was there and then they would store it for when they required it. So, yes, that, that's essentially what it contains. So predominantly um, imported silk and high quality imported linens, but also they would buy um, good quality home produced woolen cloth. And that predominantly would be for livery uh, for the lower members of the household. What do we know of how the Queen's wardrobe actually functioned? And maybe you can also tell us a little bit about how it contributed to the magnificence of the Queen's household as well. So charting how the Queen's house and um, wardrobe worked is quite tricky uh, because we have don't have as many records for the Queen's as we do for Henry VIII, but it would have worked in a similar way to the king's wardrobe. So in other words, there would be an individual who was appointed as keeper of the wardrobe. So their job was to oversee the running of it, both in terms of obviously the purchasing of the, the cloth and the and the furs and the other materials on the one hand, but also overseeing the redistribution of the things that had been purchased to the craftsmen that were going to make up the items that had been requested. So in that sense, the great wardrobe is predominantly storage space, um, but certainly with the king's wardrobe, there is also space for craftsmen to work. 
We know sometimes they did use these spaces, but also some of the others worked outside of the official space of the Great Wardrobe. So the Keeper of the Wardrobe would be assisted by a royal clerk, and they are often the individual that we get the closest to because it's going to be their handwriting that we see in the accounts, their writing that we see in the warrants. And so in terms of the whole process, once once they'd acquired the material, they would decide what the Queen required. And so warrants would be issued to the various craftsmen. And within those warrants, it would stipulate, you know, so many gowns of a particular type, and it would specify um, the types of fabrics to be used for them, whether they would have fur, the quantity, the quality. And then when we look at the final accounts, so when the tailor submitted their bill, in essence, you can see they divide it between what fabric comes from the great wardrobe or the, or the Queen's wardrobe directly. So in which case, obviously, they wouldn't charge the wardrobe for that again. But usually they would supply some of the other things, quite often the less expensive fabrics used for interlinings, for instance, and stiffenings, thread, the tailors quite often supplied that. So you, you get a sense then of how the wardrobe works with the tailor or the other craftsman in order to make the, the Queen's the clothing that's for her. And in terms of how it contributes to magnificence, it does so in a couple of key ways. And it really highlights just how important clothing and textiles were in the Tudor world. They're obviously important now, but for most people, they spend a much smaller amount of their disposable income on these things. And because on the whole, textiles have become cheaper and we probably spend less on our clothing because we expect that we might reasonably change it quite regularly because of fashions and other reasons. Although now, of course, I suspect that trend is changing again. Um, however, at this point, clothing was very expensive. And so by determining, you know, which colours you wore, which fabrics you chose, which furs you were wearing as well, these would sort of mark you out your position in society. So clothes act as a marker of status and wealth. In terms of furnishings, um, she would have had uh, a range of wool hangings. These would have included hangings made from cloth of gold and cloth of silver paint together, but also tapestries. Um, and those came in three key sorts. So arras, which included metal thread, tapestry, which included silk, but not the metal thread, and then the verdures, which were predominantly wool. And so these together were used as a sort of a real assertion of an individual's status. And that's one way um, the wardrobe is important because it contributes to this. And of course, it's not just the Queen herself, it would be her household, and especially for some of the sort of the lower members of household, the household, so in particular her footmen, all of the individuals who worked within the stables. Um, so those individuals who would accompany her when she rode out, they were highly visible members of her household. So those would be individuals who would be supplied with livery by the Queen. And, and the the choices of fabrics and colours obviously would be very eye-catching and very noticeable. And so that's why the wardrobe was hugely important, both to the Queen and her household in terms of asserting her, her status within society. And Maria, when you were talking about those roles, the Keeper of the Wardrobe and the Royal Clerk, is the Queen talking directly with them or does she have someone from her household that's liaising on her behalf, I suppose? That is quite a difficult 
question to answer, but certainly if we look at the surviving warrants, again, predominantly for the king, because that's where we have the most of them, they are signed by Henry and they have the the small seal attached. Now, I don't think he signed attached the small seal, but he did sign them. So you definitely get the sense that at the very least, he is absolutely aware of all of the warrants and what's being ordered in his name. But you suspect that he would have had a discussion in what was being ordered for him. One of the things that's interesting is we see a sort of a shift in Henry's reign. At the beginning of the reign, the things are ordered as they were under his father. So as and when the king needed them, whereas by the time we get into Henry's reign, they start to order things on a twice yearly cycle. And that's when they're committing to things for the next six months. And I I greatly suspect that Henry and indeed his queens would have had a say in what they wanted for the next six months. It isn't that sense of, you know, I suddenly need new clothes right. at a particular event. So, you know, your, 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 the thoughts about what you might want would be probably apparent to all. Whereas I think, you know, when you're planning that far ahead, you suspect that they, they would have been consulted. They might not have gone into the nitty gritty of how many yards of whatever it was was required. But I think that sense of, you know, what, what types of garments, what sorts of trimmings, and in particular, when we see, for instance, things that are made for Henry and Jane Seymour that complement each other, that sort of either are the same or counterbalance in terms of, say, use of particular colours, those are clearly strategically planned. And and I think probably very much with Henry and Jane's involvement in that decision to dress in that particular way. Okay. And when you were talking about the the wardrobes, you mentioned that the Queen, of course, had a separate wardrobe to the King and Baynard's Castle was the base for the Queen's wardrobe. And was granted, in fact, to each of Henry's wives, with the exception, I believe, of Jane Seymour. So tell us about the sorts of goods. You've, you've sort of covered this a little bit, but tell us, are there any other goods that we'd find in there that you'd like to maybe mention? So I suppose that I mentioned them very briefly. One of the things that they also buy are trimmings and sort of what we would think of as, I suppose you do the modern term for it, more of the sort of haberdashery, what they would have classed as mercery. And at the beginning of the reign, these are still very much made by the silk women. By the end of the reign and into Elizabeth's reign, it's interesting that men are moving into this area. It's a highly lucrative one. So they are making all of those amazing sort of um, types of passementry that they refer to in the, the entries fringe, the sort of silk thread buttons, all of these sort of materials. They would also have made the cord for um, points and aglets. So absolutely vital. And again, we find payments to to the silk women who are producing these, sometimes in response to particular requests. But I suspect that they would be because they would know that they're going to need large quantities of especially these in say black for instance that that's the sort of thing that you're likely to find there fur is something else that they buy and they store which also raises interesting questions about how they store them because obviously you're going to have to be quite careful in terms of storage of fur and woolen fabric in terms of obviously worrying about moth problems and those sorts of things one of the other things that we certainly find uh, references to in the king's wardrobe are also made up embroidered motifs. And I suspect that there might well have been some of these in the Queen's wardrobe. So in particular, these might be um, initials or their badges, the ubiquitous Tudor roses, 
And so these were, again, were something that embroiderers could make in advance, um, but that the wardrobe would know that they were going to need when they were making uh, livery and furnishings. And also things, for instance, um, we know that they made up covers for the royal carts, saddle cloths for the royal horses, all of these sorts of things that might well have incorporated those sorts of events. So you can see there's a little bit of sort of pre-production of some of the materials that they require so that you can then just sew those motifs on because the embroidery is quite a slow process. But a lot of it would have been done in direct response to what the Queen ordered. So the Great Wardrobe is primarily where you're going to keep new new materials that have been going to be made up, whereas she would also have had a wardrobe of the robes and a wardrobe of the beds. And so her clothes would have been kept within the wardrobe of the robes and she would have had a wardrobe of the beds, which would have looked after her furnishings. And so, and especially if we're talking about the later queens, I suspect that they, their household would run very much in the way that Henry's did, so that certain of her things would have been kept probably permanently at Whitehall just because they were spending increasing amounts of time there and then other things would have travelled with her as she moved and travelled with the king if they were say going on progress or if they were moving around their their other properties um, either together or or separately. Now you were talking before about how valuable this clothing really was and and of course for us sometimes it's hard to understand that people are leaving clothing not just royalty but leaving clothing in their wills and they're you know giving them out as gifts do you want to just talk a little bit more about this the value of this at the time yes as you say clothing was hugely valuable um and i think it was valuable in terms of its financial terms but equally now as we would tend to think of clothing in terms of i think they also valued it on an emotional level as well um so we certainly find examples within uh, catherine of aragon's list for instance where she is she has at the time of um, when her final wardrobe account is drawn up you know she's kept the things that she wore during her pregnancies for instance she keeps the gown that she brings from Spain that is going to be used for her children so so in that sense I think there is that sense of there's an emotional attachment to items and we see that across the social strata as well the king queens aren't unique in this and again as you were saying you see that in the wills especially women's wills throughout this period there are going to be items that are of personal significance that you're going to pass on to individuals and then items of of value. So in that sense, we can see, you know, if you look at the prices for some of the cloths of gold and cloths of tissue and cloths of silver, you know, they they could quite often be sort of 53, 54 shillings and an L, which is a huge amount of money if you think that you might have up to 20 L's in a gown. And to put that into context, Sir Anthony Denny, who goes on to be Henry's groom of the stool, but spends the key part of his career in the 1530s being Henry's yeoman of the robes. So looking after the king's clothes, he earns a shilling a day. So one L could be up to 50 days worth of pay for him. And he was he was well paid. So this, I think, gives you a sense of why these objects are stored and kept. Uh, we find instances of that within the 1547 inventory. And equally, um, in particular, if you look in the inventory for 1542, we find the list of Jane Seymour's clothes, which in essence have just been packed away on her death and kept at Whitehall. I think that also tells you something about him, how Henry thought about her, that he keeps her clothes and they are just unique um, in, and in this little sort of almost like a little time capsule. Whereas 
this doesn't happen for his other wives um, for, for, for obvious reasons. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know if I'd heard that, Maria. So I have to, I want to hear more about that later. I'll have to ask you. Um, so when you were talking about the fact that, that clothing, of course, denotes status and wealth, apart from now that you mentioned that with Jane Seymour, is it right that some of the pieces of clothing that the Queen's wore was then passed on to the next consort? Yes, absolutely. Willingly or unwillingly. Yeah. And I- Exactly. So there are a a sequence of letters where, for instance, Henry writes to Catherine and he of Aragon and he's asking her to relinquish the Queen's jewels. Of course, Anne wants her to relinquish the the, the Queen's barge and, of course, wants her to hand over the, the sort of the clothing that she had received. So in that sense, we certainly see clothing passed between queens. More noticeable is actually we can see um, furnishings passed between queens. So if, again, if we look at the way that um, if we look within the sort of the queen's wardrobe, we can see how different things pass from one woman to the next. And equally, how if we look within the king's possessions at the time of his death, there are a number of things that have his initials intertwined with those of his wives. It's quite difficult to pin down which wife on occasion. Obviously, he had three wives with the the HK and and two for HA. Although I think it's likely that um, those are going to belong to you know Anne. I suspect they do belong to Anne Boleyn rather than Anne of Cleves in part because he was married to Anne Boleyn for longer. But also with the sort of the way in which Anne of Cleves ends being a wife as it were you know she's she's very shrewd she does remarkably well out of the annulment of their marriage and I imagine that she would have been allowed to keep a lot of her or well, her clothes um, and a lot of those furnishings because of course she's allowed to keep the title essentially being the most significant woman after the king's daughters or should there be a subsequent wife that woman so I suspect most of them reflect those other wives but yes they are hugely hugely significant in that sense. But most noticeably, the thing that we see passed from queen to queen are the jewels. And when we're talking about how much they spent, I know this is a very difficult question, but on average, do we have any idea how much Henry or how much any of his wives spent on their wardrobes each year? Yes. So for Henry, we do have we do have more figures. Um, so I think the reason why it's so difficult to answer your question is, I think, very much because Henry married so many times and because of the way in which those marriages ended, which meant that the households were broken up in very fraught times. So it wasn't really conducive to the neat archiving of all of the papers belonging to those individual women. So in that sense, we only have sort of snippets. So we have some accounts for Catherine of Aragon. We have some for Anne of Cleves or some small amounts, but mostly prior to her arrival. So the preparations for her. So in that sense, it's difficult to assess. But on average, Henry spent about £4,000 a year on his clothing. So I suspect that in view of what's written about, say, Catherine Parr, where they talk about her, you know, dressing absolutely to the being a queen, so fully exploiting everything that was available to her in terms of cloth of gold and cloth of silver, in terms of her use of purple and crimson, her use of sable, although if we look at her portraits, we can see she's using some of those other paler furs that Queen's consort really enjoyed and liked, such as sort of lynx and leopard. But this definitely is a woman, I think, that is, or rather I should say a queen, who was really, you know, dressing the part. Um, and you can see why, you know, she's she's got 
there are five, she has five predecessors. I think she's wanting to sort of make her mark and sort of stress that she is uh, Henry's queen. And of course, being English born, she's always got that sense of having been elevated from the ranks in essence, as opposed to royalty in her own right. And so I, I think we could very much, if we had her accounts or more than the little snippets we have, I would think she was probably spending on, on, a, on a par with the king, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> And, and equally, I suspect that Anne, for instance, would have done, and I'm sure that Catherine of Aragon did, you know, again, you know, she was um, born as an infanta of Spain, she had definite expectations as to what her position was. And again, so yes, I think that and as and as these women had children, especially for Catherine, and Anne, you see them making preparations and, and also provision for their children. And of course, that would initially have come out of their expenditure, you know, before those individuals, their children had households of their own. Yeah, so that is a huge amount, isn't it? It's difficult to kind of comprehend just how much money that is. That's incredible. It's, it is a huge amount. It's. I think what's interesting is if if we if you look into the 17th century, again, it's very difficult to put a price on what, say, Henrietta Maria or Catherine of Braganza spend on their clothes. But we can see that again, Charles the First and Charles the Second spend about the same in actual terms obviously in sort of what that money would buy you you know there's been a degree of inflation by this point so it's probably purchasing purchasing power has gone down slightly but I think it definitely gives you a sense that yes Henry and the, the Tudor court is really opulent um, whereas say if you were looking at the Stuart court there's a lot less money being spent on cloth of gold and cloth of silver so they get more suits for their money but they are they're made of less expensive materials just because of course fashions have changed and and let's talk a little bit about the the fashions the female fashions at Henry VIII's court there were obviously a lot of changes throughout his reign but what were some of the main changes that we see so I suppose one of the biggest changes that we're going to see is the introduction of the farthingale or because the Spanish farthingale. So this is that underwear, underpinnings for the skirt that holds it out into that very distinct sort of conical shape that you can see really well in, say, that full-length portrait of uh, Catherine Parr. Now, we know that these are being worn earlier than that. That's probably our first best representation of a queen wearing, more one of Henry's queens wearing that particular fashion. We also see payments, for instance, for the provision of these for the the ladies Mary and Elizabeth in the mid-1540s. So while it's often associated with Catherine of Aragon, it's not so easy to chart it through her her material. And of course, it's not so easy to tell from the portraiture because, of course, they're all half length that they only show us the upper half of the body. But that certainly is a, is a key development if we were looking across this period. Another key or another interesting development, and again, we can see it very well in the portraiture of Catherine Parr, is the way in which women borrow from male fashions. So we see her wearing the sort of more male style bonnet on occasion. We see her with her gown, the the sort of essentially the bodice of the gown, the upper part of the gown cut more in the style of the doublet. And again, that's going to be something that we will see go on into Elizabeth's reign. So I think that's something else that, of course, we see. And of course, needless to say, moral religious writers comment on this and complain because they think it's inappropriate for women dressing in a more more masculine style. I suppose one of the other things that we're going to see will be then also the way in which women cover their hair. So we see that shift from the sort of the gable hood, um, which was generally regarded as one of the least flattering fashions of the period, 
towards um, the adoption of the, the French hood, which was regarded as, as a much more petite, sort of smaller, feminine head covering. And of course, it, it allowed the, the wearer to show off the hair as well at the front. And again, while that's again very much associated with, with Anne Boleyn, in reality, we know that it's being worn in advance of that. But I think if you were to walk into the gallery of uh, portraits, early modern portraits at the National Portrait Gallery and go along through the sort of the row of Henry's wives in the context also of his, his mother and grandmother, you would that is going to be one of the things that you would really notice would be that shift from the gable hood to the to the French hood. Maria, presumably to maintain this level of opulence and, and incredibly detailed gowns and things that they were wearing, you need a lot of craftspeople supporting you. So can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about the craftsmen and the women who were employed by the Tudor queens to make their clothing? Yes, absolutely. So in that sense, here we do have slightly more information and we so know the names of some of these individuals. Um, so in that sense, the queen's wardrobe staff mirrored that of the king in many respects. So she had her own tailor, she had her own skinner, she had embroiderers working for her. So in that sense, just by looking at that short list, it gives you a sense of how the craftsmen had very specific skills um, and that's, that, that's what they were valued for. And so that's what they contributed to making clothing for the queen in this particular context. So it means that they would often have to work together in order to create a particular garment. So, for instance, if we were considering a gown for the Queen, this would be made for her by her tailor. And so it's important to stress that at this point it is men that are doing that tailoring for women, as opposed to when we get sort of later into the late 17th and 18th century, where we see women starting to make outer garments for women. So we know that the tailor to Catherine of Aragon and also Anne Boleyn was called John Scutt and he was followed then by John Malt and he worked for the remainder of the of Henry's wives. So in that sense, whereas I mentioned that the changing of wife cause, has caused us a problem in terms of what documents survive, for the craftsmen that worked for the Queen's household, they actually were remarkably stable and so you can see one queen essentially usually taking on both the suppliers and the craftsmen of her predecessor. And at times, of course, we see them overlap. So, for instance, John Scutt is Catherine of Aragon's tailor. And when Henry is buying gifts for Anne Boleyn in the late 1520s and in the early 1530s, these are being made by Scutt. So he must have been in a rather awkward position yes. working for both of these women. So the Queen's tailor would have made her gowns and that would have included um, so the sleeves and obviously those could be an interchangeable element of, of the gown. He would also make uh, farthingales for her, but increasingly we see those being mentioned less, but we see mention of the forepart that can be worn to infill the front front part of the skirt of the gown, that open V shape that you see in the portraits. So those are the primary areas that the, the Queen's tailor would work on. He also would have made her loose gowns or nightgowns. We have then, say, the Queen's skinner. So this is where I was talking about how the craftsmen would work together. Many of the Queen's gowns would have been trimmed with fur. Some of the nightgowns would have been lined with fur. In particular, those linings might go in for the winter to provide warmth, but in a rare, warm British summer, the those furs might come out. So the Skinner had 
two key jobs in this case. One was to prepare furs that were bought and were going to be, that were new and we maybe being used to trim sleeves, such as some of those that we see again in that, port, that full-length portrait of uh, Catherine Parr with those amazing fur oversleeves. They, they would do that sort of work, but they would also do repairs and maintenance to furs, especially fur linings for ceremonial robes. And then they would also take in and put back, take out and put back in these fur linings. So Richard uh, Hanchett was Skinner to Catherine of Aragon. Um, and then we see Thomas Addington. He works for Anne Boleyn and it's and he also works for Catherine Pass. In terms of an individual like the embroiderer, because embroidery, if it's not of the sort I mentioned earlier, where you were making up these little motifs that you could do in advance, if you were, say, embroidering the sleeves of, of a gown, for instance, or the, the placard or frontlet, this is obviously much more labour intensive and a slower process. And so not surprisingly, the queens often have several embroiders working for them at a time. So, for instance, we know that uh, William Ibgrave worked for Anne Boleyn. Guillaume Brelon and uh, Stephen Humble also worked for her. And Brelon went on then to work for Anne of Cleves and possibly Catherine of Pass. So that's sort of, again, this sort of group. Now, for the king, of course, he had a hosier who would have worked with the tailor and he would have made the king's hose, which, of course, a very complex garment for men. But the queen also had a hosier. And so, for instance, in this case, they would have been applying essentially what we would think of as, as stockings now um, in a whole range of colours. And they're often not named, but we do know that Thomas Hardy was hosier to Anne Boleyn and, and Robert Hardy was hosier to Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr. So here we can also get a hint that these crafts and professions ran in families. And once you were a royal supplier, you were going to be very keen to keep keep that post. So in that sense, we can see that there's a cluster of these individuals working for, for the Queen, but they weren't required to work solely for the Queen. So for instance, we see John Scott and John Malt working for lots of the other women at court. And so for instance, when Honor Lyle who is married to Henry's illegitimate uncle and she's living in Calais, is wanting to have what is cur the current fashion at court, then her man of business, Hussey, he goes to the Queen's tailor and asks and commissions him to make things for her to ensure that they are as, as fashionable as possible. And just hearing some of the names that you mentioned before, are these there are some foreign workers as well as some local people, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that a number of those foreign craftsmen, European craftsmen, um, we find them in Anne Boleyn's household. You know, she's often said to have those strong connections to France and the Low Countries from the time as a young woman when she was at various of the courts there. But yes, this isn't unique to the Queen's household. We also find them in, in Henry's household. Henry has one. French tailor. So in that sense, Henry and his wives, I think, are very keen to have the most fashionable craftsmen working for them. I think this is why, of course, we see the appeal of Hans Holbein team for the court. Um, so in that sense, if you were to go into the wardrobe of, of either the king or the queen at this point, I imagine you would have heard quite a variety of, of languages and, and accents because it wouldn't have just been a, a purely London-based or English-based workforce that would have been working for them. 
fascinating. And were there, were there, I know you said that the tailor was a man at this point in time. Were there any positions that were undertaken by women or were they primarily men? They are primarily men, but there are a few places where we would find women. So um, the queen has her own silk woman and indeed the king had a silk woman too. So that provision of those uh, silkwares was a very lucrative role for women. And that's not just within the royal household, but within London as a whole. And we see that, you know, they're, they're well documented throughout the 15th and into the 16th century. Um, so that's one area where we would find women. Another is in terms of the laundry. So um, for both the king and the queen, they had a laundress. There were men attached to the laundry. So I suspect they did some hard, heavy, heavy lifting of, you know, moving the the laundry itself and all of those sorts of things. But the person with absolute responsibility for washing the fine linens were were women um, and they were very well paid. It was the one post that was guaranteed to be held by a woman within the king's household. Obviously, the queen would have women in attendance on her. But in terms of the sort of more working side of the household, again, that would be the one key post for a woman. The other area where we find women is as the seamstresses making the linen items. So for the, the smocks, linen um, sort of undercoifs and, and all of those sorts of things, that those would be made by women. Okay. And as you were speaking, I was trying to keep track of some of the different um, garments that the, the queens are wearing. So can you tell us a little bit about those principal garments that queens or high ranking women wore at the time and perhaps maybe what some of those were made of as well? Yes, absolutely. So I've, I've got in front of me here um, the list of things that were made for Jane Seymour that were listed in the 1542 inventory at Whitehall. And I thought I'd just read you a few of those because they yes. give you of what the clothes are like. So for instance, she had a gown of black damask turned up with purple cloth of gold tissue, a gown of russet velvet turned up and edged with the same, a a gown of purple velvet. Um, So in other words, we can see that in this case, they're telling us um, what the principal fabrics are. So they're again, they're these silk fabrics. So silk velvets, they were probably either single or double height pile, cut pile, and then they're being trimmed with either a satin of the same colour or making use of cloth of gold to trim them, often in uh, sort of bands or guards around the hem, up the front of the, the front opening of the skirt of the gown. Equally, she had uh, separate kirtles, so she's got a lot less of these. Um, But we have, for instance, a kirtle of white velvet, a kirtle of orange tawny velvet embroidered with silver striped, which sounds rather gorgeous, or a kirtle of carnation cloth of gold raised with silver tissue. So in that sense, um, while she has slightly less of these, you can see that they are um, incredibly opulent. She also has um, a cloak of tawny satin with two guards embroidered with Venice gold and lined with tawny sarsenets. So here we're getting a sense of what she might wear when she was outside um, of the palace when when travelling or riding. And we mentioned sleeves as being a key part of a woman's appearance at this point and how you could interchange the sleeves to make and equally you could interchange the kirtles so you could have a number of gowns kirtles and sleeves but by combining them in different combinations you end up with considerably more outfits in essence and so here we really get to see that the sleeves are ornate and this is where they also incorporate quite a lot of goldsmith's work and that's somebody that we haven't mentioned yet 
the queen would have a gold, goldsmiths working for her. Often the goldsmiths sold what we would think of as jewellery now, not just plate. So, for instance, a pair of sleeves of purple silver tissue tied with eight pairs of aglets of gold, a pair of sleeves of cloth of silver raised with gold tissue damask wire tied with eight pairs of aglets of gold. And that is very much a theme of the sleeves. So in that sense, they would look very much as they do in the two portraits of her by Holbein that we have, and in particular, the version which has the more opulent sort of oversleeves, that this is the very much the sort of thing that you can see being described here. And so she has lots and lots of these pairs of sleeves. And they were, and I think that's one of the, while in one, sometimes it seems a bit of a shame that we have two portraits of her by Holbein that are very, very similar, with the difference being really with the sleeves. I think that reflects the reality of just you know, just where the subtlety in one sense came in the Queen's wardrobe. And it's rather nice that he captures that for us. There are also then entries for separate stomachers, uh, frontlets, red hoods, and then a whole range of accessories um, and, and other items that she would have had as part of her wardrobe. Yeah, so stunning, those descriptions, trying to imagine what they would have looked like in, in real life. Amazing. Now, you, you mentioned writing before. I often hear and see people asking about clothing worn when the queens were riding or traveling. Are they wearing the same thing with, you know, you mentioned the cloak or is there a specific kind of riding outfit that, that comes into play? Um, we don't get that much information. So it's not quite the same as we have, say, for by the time we get to Elizabeth's clothes, where they're talking about specific things for riding, which is which is rather frustrating in that sense that we don't get a huge amount of, of detail. Whereas, for instance, for the king, we do get references to riding coats. And I think that's sort of, I think in part this is also the slight frustration of the difference between women's clothes and men's clothes at this point, that for the king, he has, there's a growing sense of the sort of specialization of the, the garments that are, there are lots of different garment types that are listed for him. So, you know, in addition to the doublet and hose, we have jackets, jerkins, cloaks, shammers, all sorts of different garments. And then within that, there will be specific items described as being for riding, hunting, walking. Whereas for the Queen, we very much have the gown and the kirtle. Mm -hmm. and, and so she must have done all of the things that we know that they were doing, essentially in these same garments. Incredible, um, isn't it? <laughs> we don't really get to hear about the sort of that specialization within them. It, it's a real frustration, I think, in, in, in that sense. Whereas obviously by the end of the century they're sort of they are maybe sort of slightly moving towards what will ultimately the idea of sort of more specific designated riding clothes but we know again for instance that Anne Boleyn um, was a very good horsewoman and loved to spend time riding one of the first gifts Henry gives her is a set of set of saddles for her and her ladies and there were repeat orders for saddles for, for all of the queens so they are obviously spending time in the saddle as you say and I don't know, for anyone who does ride, that you know, th these clothes do not seem ideally suited. No. <laughs> lots of time around horses that, you know, they, they seem to just home in on you as soon as they see you. And they usually love to rub over you. Um, 
not be good for any of these velvets and satins. And so I think, as you say, they, they must have had protective full parts, you would think, to cover um, um, the skirt. Yeah, thank you, Marie. I know I've always wondered that, trying to picture them riding in those amazing outfits is kind of tricky. So what about some of the accessories? You talked before about jewels, and I know I love spending time looking at portraits mm-hmm. and just, you know, marvelling at their incredible jewellery. What were some of the popular accessories at the time? Okay, so in terms of the accessories, um, Tudor women like Tudor men had a lot of them. And this, I think, is where, again, the sort of the individuality would come into your your appearance. So you would have your you would have some form of head covering. We've mentioned those those briefly. So you'd have your your hood. You would have gloves. Um, again, some of those were very much just for sort of the, the holding and carrying variety. But also we do have references going back to your previous question, gloves for riding, gloves for hawking. We also know, for instance, Catherine Parr loved shoes. She buys lots of them. Um, and like Henry, lots of them are covered where with uh, they have sort of fabric uppers, so covered in uh, satins of different colours, presumably to um, match with the rest of what she's wearing. We also know that they would have had more robust leather leather shoes um, for for riding. One, I think, one of the most interesting accessories is uh, the zibellino. Um, so you know those amazing jewelled furs that you often see more in the portraits of Italian women of this period. And they remind you very much of those sort of furs that were very popular in the sort of 30s and 40s that still had the the feet, the tail and the head attached. But certainly Henry buys some of those for Catherine Howard. And those were seen as one of the must have accessories for for women at this point. Um, And they were so hers were made of sable. And we know that from the sort of the sumptuary law that sable was reserved for royalty. And then they have these amazing jeweled heads and, and paws attached. And those were definitely seen as one of the sort of desirable accessories for for women at this period. But I think if we move from there to think about jewellery, of course, this was going to be the the ultimate accessory, which of course you could wear in different ways. So for queens, as I mentioned with the descriptions of the the sleeves, that jewellery and jewels and jewelled motifs could actually be stitched to your clothing and so a lot of this was just purely decorative and we see sort of little bunches of say pearls stitched to sleeves stitched to gowns and there are payments to tailors to take these off and move them from garment to garment so there's a degree of recycling and reworking of these but then there are also jewels that were sort of sort of more independent so for instance i suppose the girdle is one of the sort of most iconic pieces of female jewellery. And again, you see these listed in wills of of women and men, interestingly, across this period. So the girdle is something that women would often be given as as a wedding gift, and they would often bequeath it to daughters or other sort of female family members. But where a man has been widowed, you often find him leaving his wife's girdle then as one of the sort of named bequests that you see. And certainly you can see girdles in quite a few portraits of, of the Tudor women. So again, going back to that full-length portrait of Catherine Parr, but also the half-length portrait of um, Lady Mary as a young woman. You, know, you can see the girdle, the girdle there just as, as it sits around, around the sort of the, the hips in essence. And again, these were a real way of men showing off their wealth by 
the girdles they give to their to their wives um, in terms of the opulence of the decoration on them. And certainly for some of the royal girdles, they are hugely opulent in terms of the way they are described. So just having a look at some of the inventory references for these, there's say a girdle containing 32 diamonds and 64 pearls. Girdle containing uh, nine fair diamonds and eight rubies and 36 pearls by twos, so suggesting they're in pairs. And then one that's slightly more detailed, a girdle containing 18 pieces of gold, in every of them two diamonds. And then at either end, there are three diamonds having between every of these pieces I've mentioned so far, a knot of gold enameled black with letters. So these girdles were beautiful and and opulent. And if we look in the coffer that contained the Queen's jewels, we can see that there are Uh, 15 of these girdles that were listed in 1547 and they are really very very gorgeous items and probably one of the biggest pieces of jewellery that a woman would own but in addition to that they would have had um, lots of rings if you look at the portraits you can see that there are lots of chains as they're referred to uh, necklaces as we would think of them of a variety of lengths quite often the short ones such as that that Anne Boleyn is shown with with um, often with then large pendants hanging from them but often then worn with multiple others that were sort of longer and sort of hanging down further bracelets were popular they often came in pairs one of the things that we don't tend to get many references for are earrings I think pretty much because often the ears are covered, especially with the the gable hood, but they just don't seem to feature in the way that they do by the time we get into the sort of 17th century. No good, you know, member of Charles I or Henrietta's court would have been without pearl earrings, but they're not what you really find in the, the sort of Tudor Tudor jewels. And I suppose the and they also there are just these wonderful things that are just referred to as jewels. They love jewellery in its in its own sake. And these might then be things that you could either hang from a from a chain or pin to, you know, the, the bodice of a of a gown. Um, and these were often highly figurative, use of coloured enamel to um, depict the scenes on them, often incorporating large gemstones as well. So there was a jewellery was a major part of any wealthy woman's appearance at this point. And obviously for the, the queens then it was of particular importance. I'm always amazed by it when I look at some portraits and the girdles, I, I wonder how the, the woman actually moved. Just some of them are so <laughs> heavy looking, particularly more so some European portraits, but they look almost like chains, like huge yes. chains, which is just yeah. amazing. And Marie, I wanted to ask you about the shoes because obviously we don't get to see shoes very much because as you said before, we don't have too many full-length Tudor portraits. So what are the shoes like? Are they little slippers or do they have soles? What what were they like? I think the best um, glimpse we get of a pair of shoes is in one of the drawings by Holbein and it's not of an elite woman at all. It's of a young woman walking and she's sort of just holding up the front of her skirt and you can see there that she has on what look like quite flat shoes as we would think of them and um, so they've probably had a, a little you know just a little tiny tiny heel and with a fairly sort of squarish toe so similar in that sense to the sorts of shoes that we see Henry wearing um, so that's sort of basics sort of that sort of style obviously by the time we get to the end of the 16th century we're very much starting to get 
shoes with heels. But at this point, I think mostly they are sort of of the, the sort of flatter variety. There are some comments um, about women wearing shoes with heels, but those aren't that common. And again, you know, it's that sort of sense of, I think on the whole, they're, they're, they're that more that sort of flat. They could come covered in, in fabric. And just thinking about, obviously, Catherine of Aragon and Berlin and Jane Seymour, they were, of course, each experienced um, various pregnancies. So what happens yes. when the Queen's pregnant? What adjustments can they make to her clothing? Well, so so there isn't a sort of essentially a sort of a completely different set of clothes for, for pregnancy. And I think it's interesting that obviously I think with Queen's, pregnancy is something that they are wanting to be quite open about. And yeah. um, and so in that sense, they so they adjust their clothing. They literally loosen it off as, the, as, as their body starts to sort of change shape. They gradually sort of um, adjust the lacing. And I think in one sense, this is the virtue of how clothing at this point can, is the sort of the different closure mechanisms, in other words. So things might be pinned closed, they could be laced closed, or if we were thinking more about men's clothes, buttoned but for women's clothes at this point we don't tend to see that many buttons so in that sense what actually we do see is is lacing and I think one of the really good examples is the drawing by Holbein of Cecily Heron from uh, 1526 to 27. If you look at that you can see that the lacing on her gown is really quite loose and in fact pulling as her as, as, as obviously as her body's starting to sort of sort of thicken a little bit you know that she's just easing off so in other words she's making her existing clothing last for as long as possible by just making it looser and so so that's what we can see her doing there and that's obviously what Jane Seymour does because this is what people record in their comments so for instance on the 23rd of May she was described as great with child and shall be opened late with stomach betwixt this and Corpus Christi Day. And then in, on the, by the 28th of June, they're saying she goes with a placard, not laced. So I think it means that in that period, initial period, the gown was being sort of just, yes, opened and opened as she got a little bigger. And then once that didn't work anymore, they were sort of just the two sides of the gown were sort of just sort of essentially tucked in place I think placard put over the front and sort of pinned so it it looks respectable but it isn't something you would normally do and anybody that looked at that would know that this was the sort of the compromise to accommodate her changing body shape while also still allowing her to appear in public however once she got to a certain stage of pregnancy the queen consort would withdraw from court life and I imagine that that must have been a very welcome day you suspect because it meant that she wasn't still having to wear these sort of as we were hearing heavy clothes stiff uncomfortable in many respects um, and things that aren't really designed to be worn like this. So we do know some of the things. Catherine of Aragon's wardrobe of the robes include, at the time of her death, as it says, some embroidered smocks and double petticoats. And there's a little note next to these that says they were provided for the princess dowager at the time she lay in childbed. So whether, you know, in, once she had retreated within her chamber that she was more in her, her smock with maybe a petticoat over it and a loose gown probably to provide her with some warmth. We also know that they probably wore waistcoats as part of this sort of more informal attire when they weren't appearing in public. Because again, in there's a 
listed in 1547, uh, there are two waistcoats for a woman lying in of cloth of silver embroidered, and then they had also had sleeves. So these sound as though they are probably a slightly more of a compromise garment. It was maybe for after the point where you weren't continuing to wear your existing clothing or when you were more in a more private environment where you wanted something more formal, but more comfortable. And I think the idea of them being quilted suggests that they were sort of a a softer, more comfortable garment to wear. I always feel so much for Anne at her coronation, just thinking about her wearing her big coronation robes and that exhausting day and weekend that she had. Oh, goodness, I don't know how she did it, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. It must have been very, very difficult. And of course, you know, there's that wonderful discussion that she's said to have had with her father as to whether they put extra fabric in the gown to cover the pregnancy or show that it is sort of straining. And and he's the one saying, no, 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 no. You want people to see in us that you are you know you are with child so but as you say it must have been both a hugely exciting day but a hugely hugely tiring and difficult difficult day absolutely exhausting and we know that Anne was known for being very fashionable and and incredibly stylish I think she just had that natural elegant about her and Henry obviously gave her lots of lovely gifts throughout their courting period and then their marriage as well can you tell us maybe about some of these gifts of clothing or jewellery? Yes, certainly. So we can see some of those early gifts that Henry gives her from his privy purse accounts. It's interesting, I think, that he puts them through the equivalent of his private bank account as opposed to... uh, Yes. um, (laughs) more, More subtle, I suppose. So he bought her saddles and he bought her archery equipment. And I think this is where we get the sense of her being that sort of, as you say, that sort of vibrant individual who likes to go out and, and hunt as he does, um, you know, they, they share that interest. And, but also at that point in November of that year, he bought her crimson satin and budge, which is um, a type of lambskin to, for a gown, enough for a gown. So 20, 20 yards of satin. So I think we, we start to get that sense of he's buying her a variety of gifts, but bearing in mind that, you know, your horse and its trappings were an important part of your appearance for these sorts of activities then these this sort of set of gifts go together and present her as someone that was obviously of great importance to the king after they were married we don't see as many gifts but there's a one very interesting one from june 15 uh, 35, which was described as being for our dearest wife. And it was a gift of 20 and 7 eighth yards of green satin and 13 and 5 eighths yards of checked green cloth of gold, which again would have been enough to make a gown. And you can't help but think that obviously this is the sort of the the, the green green gown with those green sleeves that, you know, it's often associated with her, that, that song. And it's, it shows certainly at this point that he is still thinking of her as his, his, his dearest wife. Another thing that is I always find very interesting is of those early gifts, one of the things he buys her is one of these loose or nightgowns or he buys the fabric for and it's made for her by Scott, the Queen's tailor. Um, so it's made from black satin. It's lined with black taffeta and edged with black velvet. Um, and it's the sort of, it's a very informal but also intimate garment but also they were expensive by their very nature of the sheer quantity of fabric that they required and so on all levels it is a very interesting gift and I think it tells us something about 
the nature of the way their relationship is developing. And in the Holbein drawing of an unknown woman that's thought to be Anne, and I think convincing arguments have been made recently as to why it is Anne, she is wearing one of these loose gowns. And so it's always that sort of feeling that it's it might not be this particular example that I've sort of given you the details of here, but it's interesting also that Anne was confident enough in her position at the point when Holbein drew that to draw her in a very informal way. It is very interesting, I think, about it, the Queen's feeling of her own, her security, I think, in her position at that point. Um, Obviously, later on, there'd be all of those accusations of the immorality in her household. But I don't think, you know, that is obviously not why she's chosen to be painted in this at this point. I think it is that sense of it's an intimate portrait and, you know, it might well have been intended for Henry. Who knows? It was, it may not have been intended to be looked at in a more open sort of environment. You know, it might not have been one that was intended for a long gallery. It might have been intended for the king's private apartments in that sense. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that one up because I I feel quite drawn to that portrait. And of course, there's lots of people arguing that, that it's not Anne for that reason that you said that she looks like she's dressed in this kind of casual wear. Um, but of course, there's the portrait of Henry Fitzroy in which he is in a similar kind of casual yes. wear I suppose you could call it yes. but um what do you think about the the band Maria or the hair do you think because of course if when you see it in color there is a kind of golden element at the top here which some people have said no that's kind of a band or others no that's hair color so it can't be Anne what what do you think about that that is a tricky one in terms of as you say you know they always describe her as um being dark haired so Yes, this and of course this is going to be that difficulty of yes, is it is it her or not? I'm inclined to think it is her. I think on the basis of the the fact that she was in a position to be painted in that informal style. But yes, then as you say, it raises that difficulty of duties. I need to go and have another look, I think. Yes, yeah, have another look. I'd be interested to hear what you think because the other question that pops into my mind is might the colour have faded or changed over time? Because, of course, she was dark, but there are reports that it was also kind of an auburny sort of colour. So I I would love someone to to have a look and sort of think, could that colour have faded or might that be some accessory that she's wearing Um, because I too tend to think the timing was perfect we think it was around 1534 so she you know may have also been pregnant at the time because she was Mm -hmm. that year and we know Holbein Mm -hmm. was at court he's drawing everyone else I can't believe that he didn't take a likeness of the queen I really find that very difficult to believe so yes go and have another look and let me know I'd love to hear your um, your opinion Yeah. And also, if we think that when um, Holbein paints Christina, Duchess of Milan, you know, she is wearing one of these gowns and she thought that that was appropriate. Mm. Now, obviously, she turns Henry down. Yes. (laughs) Clever girl. (laughs) Very. (laughs) Um, But it, it, it is that sense. I think that is a good example of someone, you know, she's recently widowed, but, you know, she is being painted eminently eligible widow you could argue that she's not made a huge effort to dress up (laughs) this portrait (laughs) but equally I think it shows you the confidence she had in her her position to be painted more informally so yes I think I think just because it's informal in that picture of Anne doesn't mean that it can't be her but yes I will go and yes wonderful okay I look forward to hearing from you about that now during um Elizabeth's reign a series of laws were passed mm. and our listeners have probably heard of those sumptuary laws regarding dress codes, etc. So why did the Queen introduce these? And could you give us just some 
brief examples of the kinds of fabrics and types of clothing that people were permitted or not permitted to wear? Yes, certainly. So Henry VIII also passes sumptuary law. But what's interesting that in his four laws, women are mentioned in the first one, only in as much as to say the law doesn't apply to them. Other three, they're not mentioned at all. So in other words, Henry is not interested in regulating women's dress. When we get to Elizabeth's reign, 1562, Elizabeth issued her first sort of act of apparel. Um, she was in that it stated that she was following on from Henry VIII and her sister Mary and Philip and their legislation. And as such, the reasons given were very much economic. So in that sense, they are keen to promote the wearing of home produced fabrics and furs and to reduce expenditure on imported luxury items as they would see them. In that sense, it's very interesting that they are presented as being economic issues, not moral issues. Whereas if we were looking at some of the European sumptuary law, we would see it very much placed in terms of, you know, buying these luxury goods is bad for the soul, don't do it, is the way they're framed. Um, However, by 1574, we see a change and Elizabeth issues um, a new set of legislation. And this time it breaks down the sort of requirements of what you can and can't wear or should and shouldn't wear for both men and women. So one of the interesting questions is why are women suddenly included, whereas they weren't before? It's very hard to prove it, but I suspect one reason might well be that, of course, as the Queen is now starting to get a little older, she's probably now aware of competition from women at court. Having um, the you know the balance of the royal household means that she's surrounded by a female privy chamber, staff of the and they are obviously dressed in particular ways. And I think she's just seeking to control probably what other women can wear, because I think while other women are never going to be able to rival her in terms of the scale of her wardrobe, they might well individually be able to rival her in sort of one or two outfits. And you wouldn't, you suspect she does not want to be upstaged very often. And so I suspect that this is part of it, that whereas, you know, when there's a male monarch on the throne, they're always interested in the male elite and how they are dressing um, once you've got a female monarch on the throne. Not surprisingly, she's interested in, in women as well. So to give you some examples, so it starts off, so they're hierarchical, both in terms of the social hierarchy, but also the dress and fabric and fur hierarchy. So it begins by saying, none shall wear any cloth of gold, tissue, nor fur of sables, except duchesses, marquesses, and countesses. And then it goes on to say where they are allowed to wear these things. And they give us a wonderful list of things that these ladies are allowed. So they're allowed to have gowns, kirtles, partlets, and sleeves. They're allowed to have them there. And then they go through. So then they, there are restrictions on who can wear velvet. So, for instance, none shall wear any velvet in gowns, fur of leopards, embroidery of silk, except the degrees and persons above mentioned. So, in other words, these are the duchesses, marquises and countesses. 
but also then Viscountesses, Baronesses and others of like degree. Also then the wives of the Knights of the Garter and then the ladies of the Privy Chamber, as well as the sons of Barons and of Knights, uh, or rather the the wives of these individuals. So it's quite complicated to read in terms of these lists of who can't wear what, and then, but there are always exceptions. So it's that way of trying to manage people. But I think what's interesting is if we move further down, she's they, they talk about satin, and they talk about tufted taffeta, and they talk of fur that groweth not within, of the kind that groweth not within the Queen's dominions. So here we can see where they're being, you're being very much restricted to home-produced fur. And then they go on to sort of look at the wool-silk divide in that sense. So again, it is very much the sort of landed elite that they are interested in regulating here. And they don't tend to discuss individuals who might be the most likely to be breaking these rules, which are the wives of wealthy merchants, for instance. I suspect that these are the women that you can see in London wearing these things because their husbands are trading in them. They are, you know, by them wearing them, they are a walking advert for what their husbands are selling. So um, it's not surprising that uh, we see people sort of flouting these, these rules you know, they're notoriously difficult to, to regulate and impose. But from our point of view, what's interesting about them is they um, give us some insights into what is desirable and what is, is fashionable. And as soon as you stop people or try to stop people having one thing, they come up with a new, they even move where they're wearing the band item from, say, the gown onto the sleeves because sleeves weren't covered previously, or they just find a new name for something. It's really interesting how people, yes, you set a regulation and then people find a way to evade it. And if you look at the law over a period of time, you then get a sort of increasingly detailed sense of what they're trying to control. It's interesting as well. I'm just thinking, how did they actually communicate that information to everyone? Does everyone have a little pamphlet at home that they refer to as they're getting dressed? Or As you you say, I think this is part of the problem. How did they communicate it? We know that these things were printed, um, that they would be read out. I suspect in particular, in part, the government was reliant on the livery companies for sort of self-regulation. And so you see the various companies going round, checking out what tailors are, in particular it's tailors that they seek to try and regulate. And occasionally, again, you will get points where sort of the the tailor's company is going and, and checking people's tailor's workshops for what they're making and looking at, you know, looking at their orders and checking, you know, you know, sir, whatever it might be, you know, he isn't within the right category for having this, but it's going to be almost impossible to to really regulate. And so those few individuals that get sort of punished in this way are very unlucky. (laughs) Maybe just that sense of, you know, an example, and they hope that by making an example, this will stop it for a while. But on the whole, you know, they are, they are very hard to impose and enforce. But that doesn't mean they aren't interesting. It does tell us what the anxieties are that people have about about clothing and the underlying principle that they feel you ought to be able to look at someone and be able to sort of place them within society um, and that your clothes do that. And that sort of brings us back to one of your your early 
comments about how important clothing was in society. And in one sense, I think this sort of shows that people felt it was very much uh, sort of vouched for your place in society. And this is why they're then worried that if you're addressing above your status, people might then be deceived in terms of you know, what they might expect of you as a, as a person, as a potential patron, for instance. I think this, this is where those anxieties lie. Staying on the subject of Elizabeth, like all Tudor monarchs, she was very conscious of her appearance and her image, of course. And I've read this, and correct me if this is incorrect, please, um, but Elizabeth owned something like 2,000 gowns at, at her death and had well over 600 you know, pieces of jewellery. Uh, how did the actual culture of gift-giving help maintain this incredibly opulent and lavish wardrobe? Um, it was hugely important. If we compare her to her father, her father's sort of New Year's gifts were mainly, mainly pieces of gold or silver gilt plate and followed by money and a small number of other, other presents, as it were, of which clothing was one. However, by Elizabeth's reign, we can see that clothing really is an important gift. And for, for so it's important both for the giver and for Elizabeth. So from Elizabeth's point of view, people who were contemplating giving gifts of clothing would usually consult with the women of the, the privy chamber to get a sense of, you know, what would the Queen like? What colour is sort of her favourite at the moment? What could I choose that would stand out amongst the other things that she's got? So, so I think there's definitely a sense of her interest, her taste driving these gifts on the one hand. And so they actively augment the things that she's ordering from the wardrobe. But on the other hand, then it also means for the, the giver, they have the chance of, if you get it right, you know, giving the Queen something that she's going to really love and admire, that you will see her wear. And you're going to obviously have presumably the great pleasure of saying to your friends, she's wearing a <laughs> part today you know that I imagine would have been hugely important so what's interesting is we can see for instance that sometimes husbands and wives that are at court might give a joint present either because it means they can afford something bigger and more spectacular if they sort of buy it together or they might buy the two components of something so you might find that say sleeves would come from one of them and the matching sort of placard or full part might come from somebody else so we can see joint gifts we can also see craftsmen providing gifts usually the sorts of things they would make for the queen as another reminder you know I am your loyal you know your loyal you know the, the maker of your shoes here is a beautiful pair of embroidered sort of slippers or such like and equally for people like Dudley they might combine gifts of clothing and jewellery and they quite often would give her multiple gifts so I think it's good for the giver. It's good for the queen. It allows the giver to create something that's really tailored to the queen's interests and tastes. And sometimes you find that they make little puns about, you know, maybe what her nickname is for them or those sorts of things in terms of, so Alenson gives the queen a froggy jewel um, because that's what she calls him. So yes, there's, so there are those sorts of things. I think the other way that the gift giving is really interesting in terms of the Queen's wardrobe is, you know, you would be desperately hoping that she would accept your gift and wear your gift and keep your gift. She didn't always accept gifts. So we know that there were things that were made for her or commissioned um, for her by Mary Queen of Scots that she either refuses to either accept or decline 
or she declines. So your gift can get left in limbo if she doesn't say one way or the other. Or you really know and everybody else knows what position you're in at court if she says no. One of the other things we also see is she's a re-gifter. And so some things sort of go in and come back out again quite quickly, but other things get kept for a long period. And it doesn't necessarily mean when she would re-gift your gift to someone that, that she hadn't appreciated your gift. It might be that because it's belonged to her, it suddenly then gains this extra cachet. And then you're getting some getting something that you know she'd she'd worn and, and then treasured, but then was was passing on. So gift giving is a really a fascinating under Elizabeth. And yes, I think some of the most opulent things come as gifts rather than her own purchases. And they are certainly a very important part of the wardrobe and the Queen's sort of annual acquisition of both clothes and jewels and accessories. The gift element, both at the new year, but also say when she's on progress, is is hugely important. And they really allow people to give something that's sort of personal. By the sounds of it, it doesn't sound like those numbers are, are very inflated then, given the length of her mm. reign and her um, and her love of, of everything no. opulent and beautiful and all those great gifts. That's just, that's amazing. Now, Maria, this has been such an incredibly informative and wonderful discussion, but I have one last little thing to ask you, and that is what I call a Tudor Queen's takeaway. So I've been asking all my guests during this series just to give us a little something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. And so what I was thinking was that we've been talking about the queens and um, their clothes. Unfortunately, we don't really have many of those that survive. But what we do that does survive, of course, is, is Hampton Court Palace. And I think that this is a wonderful place that if you have the opportunity to go and visit, I really would encourage you to do so. This is a palace that we know that all of Henry's wives would have stayed within. And we can still find little sort of hints of their presence within it. Um, so for instance, in the Amberlin Gateway, if you look up into the sort of the ceiling of that gateway, you still find the little combined H's and A's. The general feeling is that, you know, they were just too difficult to remove. Usually when Henry changed wife, you know, the poor glaziers had to go through and remove all of the glass that had the initials of Henry with the previous wife and then replace it with, with new initials. Equally, if you go into the Royal Chapel, if you look on either side of the entrance to the chapel, there are the king's arms and the arms of Jane Seymour. So in that sense, we you, you know there are hints of these women within those the, the rooms. Um, and as you walk through those spaces, you can walk through the spaces that they would have walked in wearing the sorts of clothes that we have been discussing. And I think that that gives you then, you know, surrounded by, say, if you stand in the, the hall, you're surrounded by the Abraham tapestries, then it, you can envisage yourself within the context that they would have been in and so I think that is a really good way to get a sense of what it would have been like to have been dressed as a Tudor queen and, and to be within that space and if you aren't able to visit Hampton Court then I recommend you have a look at its website they have a very good website and it gives you that sense of being able to move around it and equally if you want sort of more than that if you look at the work of Simon Thurley he's written extensively on the Tudor palaces one book specifically on Hampton Court but another more generally on the Tudor royal palaces and if you look in there you'll find that there are the floor the ground plans for the apartments as they would have been at this point and so if you if 
if you like that sense of thinking it very much as a tutor space, you can look at those plans. I personally like looking at those and thinking, you know, how, how would you have come into the palace? How would you have been able to get from, say, the royal apartments down to the chapel? What route would you have taken? You know, how would you have got out of the palace or in, bearing in mind that you are likely to have arrived by barge? Personally, I always found it is um, one of the spaces that you can still really get a sense of what it would have been like to have been a, m- a member of those that Tudor court completely agree with you Maria it's one of my favorite places on the planet and I've been nerdy enough to take my little floor plans with me when I visit to try and find where I am and and imagine the the buildings that are now gone unfortunately so that's fantastic and I and both those books are wonderful as are all your books I have to say I love all of your books too so lots of great things for our listeners to to go off and and have a look at after the episode and once again thank you so much for talking tutors with us it's been a pleasure thank you so so much for asking me, Natalie. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.